0: Okay, here's one of the strangest outcomes in a courtroom I have heard about in a while. And it contains a lesson that very well might come in handy for you, and I do mean you, someday in your own life. Jake Halpern was the reporter who witnessed this. He was in a courtroom in Georgia. He was down there researching a book about credit card debt.
1: This is called – in Georgia, they call it magistrate court, and it's basically small claims court. And you go in, and it's all debtors. You know, people refer to it even as debtors' court.
0: So Jake meets a couple sitting there, Frederick and Kian. They're in their 40s, nicely dressed. She's a shoe salesman. He's an ex-Marine who had a business, buying houses, rehabbing them, and then selling them, which was going great till the housing market fell apart in 2008. And then that kind of went to hell for a while. They ended up taking on some debt. And then they got a notice in the mail saying that they owed money to a company called LVNV Funding, which is what brought them to court.
1: And Kian at this point says, like, I don't even know who LVNV Funding is. And one of the reasons that she says, I'm here today in court is just to figure out like what this is all about, because she doesn't even recognize them as being a creditor. And and, and this,
0: how much are they on the hook for?
1: They're on the hook for $3,762.20. So we're sitting there talking, and this young guy in a suit all of a sudden calls out their name. And... For a moment, it's like not clear who exactly he is. I mean, he calls it out in the way that almost like an official would call out your name. And they 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 start walking over to talk to this guy. So this young guy quickly says, uh, I'm the lawyer representing the people that own your debt. Are you, you know, Kian? Are you Frederick? And then he kind of looks at me and he's like, and who are you? Jake explains that he's a reporter. He's researching a book. The guy replies, well, I'm not comfortable with you being here. And Frederick it's like, well, we are comfortable with him being here. And there's this, like, moment, and this lawyer just kind of rolls his eyes and just continues
0: with his pitch to them. Frederick and Kian tell the lawyer that they're confused. They don't know who this NVLV funding is or what the debt is. And the lawyer says that his client owns their American Express debt. Basically, when Frederick and Kian failed to pay off their American Express bill, American Express sold the IOU to this company, and they're trying to collect it. Obviously, that's a big business. There are lots of companies that do this. The lawyer asks them,
1: You did have an American Express card, correct? And they say, yeah, we had an American Express card. And you do live at, And he gives their address, yes. Well, this is what you owe. And then he, he reaches into his like briefcase, and he pulls out this piece of paper, um, which I'm actually holding in front of me. I brought it along. At first glance, it resembles a credit card statement. Like the ones that we get every month that says what you owe, right? But then, like at the top, and you look and kind of, the, in, it says at the very top of it, um, this is an account summary. It is not a credit card statement from the original creditor and has not previously been provided to the consumer. So it like <laughs> it's really bizarre right off the start because they're handing this thing that's clearly been like set up to resemble a credit card statement, and yet there it says right at the top, but this is not actually a credit card statement.
0: And so the things that you would find on a normal credit card statement, like a list of charges, it doesn't have that, it doesn't say how much of this is the original debt and how much is interest. There's nothing that would help you figure out how they got to the number $3,762.20. So Frederick asked the guy if he has anything else to help them make sense of this number. Does he have the original contract from when they took out the credit card to prove that in fact his client does actually own the debt now and it's all legit? The lawyer says he doesn't need to provide any of that. The debt is real. They have to pay. And then Jake pipes up. For his reporting, he's wondering, does the lawyer actually have any of that stuff? The original signed contract or account statements?
1: So the lawyer turns back to me and he says, are you representing them? And I said, no, no, I'm just curious. And he's like, well, you can't represent them. You are not a lawyer. And Frederick's like, he's not representing us. He just asked the same question that I did.
0: The lawyer repeats, you can't represent them. And Jake says they go around and around on this for a while. And finally, it's time to go into the courtroom. And as they walk in, the lawyer taps Jake on the shoulder and tells him, I'm going to put you on the witness stand.
1: And I was like, OK. Like, I, I couldn't tell. Like, this just a crazy thing to say. I didn't know if he was just like messing with me. Five minutes later, they call Can's name out. And then the judge also says, and, you know, Jake Halpern, you need to come up here, too. <laughs> so okay. i'm like and then it's me and kian raising our hands together and being sworn in together almost like co-defendants i mean that's the only that's the only way i can describe it. it's like we're both on trial here and
0: you've known kian how long at this i've point? known her
1: like 10 minutes okay okay so and the young lawyer immediately kind of starts with like what's his opening argument and he tells the judge this man right here is representing this couple And he is practicing, therefore practicing law without a license. And, Your Honor, I need you to inform him that he could face criminal
0: sanctions for doing this. (laughs) Jake tells the judge that he only asked a few questions and the judge rules it turns out this is not the same thing as pretending to be a lawyer. So that gets settled. And then they turn to the business at hand. Remember, this entire story I'm telling you is about credit card debt and what happens in court when a consumer is sued. And so far, as you see, So far, right? The lawyer is playing hardball. He is not messing around, which makes what happens next even more interesting. The judge turns to the lawyer and the judge says to the lawyer, so what do you want to do about this debt? And the lawyer then
1: says to the judge, you know what? Give me a minute. I need to consult with my client. So he walks out of the courtroom. Me and Kian and the judge are kind of left in the courtroom and the lawyer goes out into the hallway and then comes back like two minutes later and says, your honor, we're going to be dropping this, dismissing the case. What? Yeah. And I'm like, I'm looking at her and Kian's looking at me and we're both like this just makes, this makes no sense like after all this fuss
0: and this like full court press you put on us. So Jake and Kian and Frederick go into the hallway and they are trying to figure out what in the world just happened, right? And this lawyer from Georgia Legal Services who saw this whole thing go down joins their conversation.
1: And he's not in the least bit surprised by this. He's like he's like oh yeah of course he dropped the case. And I'm like what do you mean of course he dropped the case? He said, "Oh, well, you know, when a consumer actually shows up in court, you know, and says the magic words, then these cases basically evaporate."
0: And I say the magic words. He says, "Yeah. Show me the evidence. Show me the evidence." In other words, show me where you got this number, $3,762.20. The Georgia Legal Services lawyer told Jake that if you're standing before a judge and you say, "Okay, I don't recognize this amount that you say I owe, and I want to see some documentation. I want to see account statements or whatever, because I have no way to know with certainty that this debt is really mine. The judge will usually turn to the other side and ask for the evidence. And in all likelihood, they'll have no documentation and they'll drop the case. And this is true not just in Georgia, but elsewhere, because the way this business works, Jake says, when credit card companies sell these IOUs to debt collection companies, they usually don't give them any documentation. Usually they just give them a spreadsheet with a long list of people who owe money on the credit cards and their addresses and their last payment and how much they owe and not a lot more than that. So when these companies take you and me to court, what they're betting on is we won't show up, which is a really good bet, Jake says. Because the vast
1: majority of people don't actually who are debtors who are being sued don't actually show up in court. Uh, the no-show rate there's different estimates, but it's between eighty and ninety percent
0: of people don't show up. If they don't show up, they lose. If they showed up, if they said the magic words, they would probably win. And now you know the magic words. You can use them yourself, though. Jake said he is not sure that he thinks that's always such a good thing. He talked to another guy who had a lot of debt. This is an Indian immigrant who owned a steakhouse and owed like $300,000. And he had used these magic words almost,
1: you know, to the point where it was like a scam. Like he had, he owed all this money for the steakhouse that had gone bust. And he was just showing up in court and saying, like, show me the original signed contract, show me the statements. And he was like beating these debts left and right. Like, oh, wow. And, yeah. He was working it. Like, oh, my God, there's this magic button, and I can totally get off the hook for all this money that I owe. I'm just going to keep on hitting it. Boom, 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 boom. But you see, now you're
0: confusing me, because uh, up until now, I thought the magic button was a really good thing. And now I think maybe it's a bad thing, too. Well,
1: what it is, it could be a good thing or a bad thing. I felt conflicted about it. It seems strange that you wouldn't now have to pay off anything of what
0: you borrowed. But today on our program, magic words, they can be used for good or for evil. We have stories of magic words that supposedly do all kinds of incredible things, like erase your debts, as you just heard, or make you rich, levitate you, help you get along better with your older relatives whose minds are going. From WBEZ Chicago is this American Life, I'm Ara Glass with the same magic words that I intone every week at this time, full of hope that they're gonna work, even though the actual magic they contain is next to nothing. Those words, stay with us. Aquan, I believe I can fly. So there's this book full of magic words that one of our contributors, Jonathan Goldstein, found in his apartment when he was moving recently. He hadn't looked at it in over 30 years. It's called Ultra Psychonics, How to Work Miracles with the Limitless Power of Psychoatomic Energy written by a man named Walter Delaney, published in 1975. And the book's premise, its basic premise, is that just as objects are composed of atoms, thoughts are composed of psychic atoms, or what Delaney calls psychons, ultrons, and egons. And I'm just going to let Jonathan explain what all that means. I was 11 years old
2: when my father walked into my bedroom and handed me a copy of Ultra Psychonics. He wasn't much of a gift giver, more of a check giver but I was into magic tricks and fantasy novels, so when he saw it in a used bookstore, he must have thought it'd be right up my alley. The frayed yellow dusk jacket promised a grab bag of every occult slash parapsychology slash self-help topic under the sun, all in 237 pages. Among other things, the book promised to teach you how to shoot mental laser beams, move solid objects with your mind, make others obey your command, Multiply your brain power by a factor of a thousand and defend yourself against demonic attack. Ultra Psychonics revealed what I always suspected that the adult world operated on magic. Finding a job, a wife, acquiring a bag of Egg McMuffins with the mere flash of a plastic card. How else were these things accomplished? To an 11 year old, The book's theory seemed as plausible as anything else. An excerpt from page 217 explains The Secret of Ultra-Levitation. 1. Remove all your clothes and stand on a bathroom scale. 2. Generate the ultronic power globe on a string as you did for the ultronic poltergeist technique. 3. Concentrate on making it rise like a balloon, lifting you with it. 4. Keep your eyes on the scale. It will start to drop, bit by bit, showing that you are getting lighter. This wasn't your granddaddy's old levitation. This was ultra-levitation. And most importantly for me, ultra-psychonics required neither time nor effort. The inside flap stated it was as simple, easy, and natural as breathing. And for a child adept at breathing, but little else, this was exciting news. In those dark, ignorant days before the universal remote, one had to rise, not unlike an animal, from one's perch to change TV stations. By using ultra kinetics, as outlined in Chapter 13, I'd never have to debase myself that way again. Never again would I have to suffer through the depressing stage lighting of Barney Miller when the Beverly Hillbillies was a mere psychic click away. No longer would I be pathetic, I would be ultra-telepathetic. This was during the Eden of my pre-adolescence, a time when I had yet to discover the Kmart lingerie insert, and so had plenty of time on my hands. I wasted hours in bed, lying flat on my stomach with the book open at my side, squinting so hard that my vision began to blur as I tried to close the bedroom door with my mind. Even though I had, as the book instructed, dutifully turned on the ultronic generator in my head to stimulate my flow of ultrons, I was getting nowhere. I assumed the fault was mine, that I was not following the instructions properly. But reading it now, it's hard to figure out how anyone could follow along. I now wonder whether my father knew it was insane and had only gifted me with the book as a means of getting me out of his hair. He could read in peace while his son stared at a door jamb for hours on end. I wonder if my father still even remembered the book. Yes. You, you remember it? Yes. Right off the bat? Right. <laughs> I thought I'd have to refresh your memory.
3: No, no, no. I remember it. It's all kinds of psychos- uh what do you call it, uh, experiments and magic. Very scientifically proven and concrete and so forth. They give you a formula, step-by-step way of doing it, etc.
2: Did you try any of the techniques I were offered no, in No, I
3: never tried any of them. But for some reason I thought maybe there's a certain amount of validity, maybe. But, I mean,
2: I don't know that I necessarily think of you as a as a believer in, in that kind of stuff. I don't
3: poo-poo it.
2: I don't poo-poo anything. This is patently false. My father has poo-pooed everything from sushi to liquid soap. He's poo-pooed abstract expressionism, the Rolling Stones, and the entire state of Florida. He once even poo-pooed my poo-poo platter, telling me egg rolls were best enjoyed cold... In fact, whenever my great-uncle Saul bragged about how his other nephew, Barney, was a successful doctor, my father poo-pooed the hell out of that. Getting himself worked up, he'd insist that a chiropodist was no doctor. You, you remember um, Mom's Uncle Saul used to have um, a nephew named Barney? A
3: chiropodist.
2: A foot doctor.
3: No, he's not a medical doctor, no. But you're not an M.D., can't operate on my foot.
2: Here's what I'm saying is I I, I, if I have
3: a bunion or a corn. Right,
2: okay. I bring that up to illustrate the fact that you don't just yeah. swallow things hook, line, and sinker. Here was somebody no. presenting someone as a foot doctor and you said no. Right. He's not a doctor. That's right. So but I mean in the in the case of this I imagine you you approached it probably with some skepticism.
3: This book, you know, it was it was kind of uh how could I put it, uh it seemed to me to be backed by some fact
2: why? The way it was written. What What was it about the way that it was well, written? Well, the
3: way, because it was so concrete, so specific. There was nothing vague about it. Yeah. It's a solid book. It's got a table of contents, if I remember, you know? It's not like any any little leaflet or a pamphlet. Yeah. Whoever wrote this, well, he, he put a lot of effort into it, I'll tell you that. He put a lot of effort into it, you know? I get the feeling this guy wasn't trying to con anybody. He really believed what he was writing.
2: Did Walter Delaney really believe what he was writing? Believe, for instance, that while the old-fashioned zodiac was outdated, his psychonic zodiac, with its cryonox, vernox, estivox, and invernox signs, was more scientific as it was seasonally based? And that even if you were born under the estivox summer sign, you might exhibit a more cryonox winter-type personality if you were born in an air-conditioned hospital. The back of the book refers to him as, quote, one of the world's leading authorities on the psychic and occult sciences, but I could find no mention of him anywhere on the Internet. It was only when I searched on Walter Delaney and pseudonym that I finally got a lead. It turns out that, like so many other mystical men, from Leonard Susskind to Regis Philbin to my father, Buzz Goldstein, Walter Delaney was originally a Jew from the Bronx by the name of Joseph Schaumberger. Schaumberger passed away in 2011, but I managed to track down his daughter, Barbara. She was in her early 20s when her dad was writing the book, and she remembers it clearly. At the time, Schaumberger was living in New Jersey and making a decent wage as an editor at a publishing house that specialized in occult self-help books with titles like Secrets from Beyond the Pyramids and The Magic of Chantomatics," And he was astonished by the amount of money he saw writers making. Here's Barbara.
4: They were just taking buckets of money home and it was driving him crazy. Um, so his wife Dorothy said, uh, Well, why don't you write one of these books yourself? Had so he ever he,
2: had he ever w- written a book before?
4: No, <laughs> but um, what he did was he did this kind of um, careful study. He just kind of um, flipped through magazines and, and looked at um, newspapers, mm-hmm. and he read scientific uh, journals and such. So, from from that combination of things, he just. Um, pulled ideas out and made, you know, what sounded good to him.
2: Was his intention to make it scientific, or was it... No.
4: (laughs) No, his intention was to make money. You have to understand that, that this was just a kind of... It started out as a kind of warped family joke, and he'd read it to the family and say, Does this sound reasonable? Does this sound interesting?
2: Do you you remember him reading you actual passages from the book? Oh, yeah,
4: yeah. The the best one, our family, the absolute family favorite was the money one, where he, um, one chapter was about uh, money, about making money.
2: I think that was in the chapter uh, on uh, Ultra Pictronics, How to Materialize (laughs) the Riches You Desire.
4: I'll be honest, I've never read the whole book all the way through. But anyway, he said this is where you would... Go around the house and you'd gather up your bills and your bank statements and your wallet and such and you'd put them all under your pillow mm-hmm. and then you would have this formula, this chant that you would you would use. The the lyrics go, My money lies under my pillow, my money lies close to me. No matter what I do tomorrow, bring back my money to me. This was written to be sung to the tune of my bonnie lies over the ocean. Anytime I hear those words, I can hear it in my head. You know, I, I can hear a, a the echo of my father singing that song.
2: Looking at it now, it seems obvious it was a lark. It almost reads like a parody of another famous science fiction-y slash self-helpy book with a lot of pseudoscience jargon that, for legal reasons... I will only say rhymes with diuretics. Take, for instance, the astral spur. You were supposed to use it at the racetrack to give your horse extra energy, and it involved standing on one foot and projecting a psychic laser at your horse's hindquarters. And then there's the section on ultra-vision influence. The road to domination is explained this way. 1. Sit in front of a mirror and practice staring fixedly into your own eyes. 2. Practice the look on animals. Cats are the best. See if you can stare down a cat. Don't be surprised if the cat seems to win the first few rounds. 3. Practice the look on strangers, on various forms of public transport. Stare steadily at someone sitting opposite you until you force them to turn their head away or look down. You have just mastered your first human subject. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not that surprised, but I'm a little saddened, or or the the mm. part of me because I mean, I I discovered the book when I was like 11 years old, so that little uh-huh. kid part of me. Oh, is I'm a, so sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's. I mean, it, mm. it, it makes sense because like there are parts in the book where he references. Things like the Tibetan Book of the Dead and right. other, the Golden Flower and things from Eastern philosophy.
4: Oh, he was very familiar with all these things. You know, like the Egyptian Book of the Dead was a big one because it was always, you know, this thing of, well, maybe if they had followed the formulas correctly, maybe something, you know.
2: He, he would say that.
4: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean,
2: that, that sounds like someone who, you know, either did believe or kind of wanted to believe
4: he may have wanted to believe. I mean, it may be that in his private thoughts there were some things in there that he believed in. Um, he wouldn't have. I, I can't see him as sharing that with us because uh, he didn't want to open himself up to ridicule. No, he was your. He was a very kind of um, kind of geeky science fiction fan-looking person. You know, mm-hmm. the the thick black, heavy-lensed glass eyeglasses. You know, kind of short, pudgy Jewish boy from the Bronx. Um, uh, no, he he was a very kind of quiet, private person.
2: Do, do you have any idea how he arrived upon the name Walter Delaney?
4: Oh, of course. <laughs> he was at the office, and the book was all ready for publication, gone through all the copy editing. And he wandered into the men's room at Prentice Hall and thinking, where am I going to find a name? What name can I use that's not going to be identifiable? And he just kind of looked at the top of the urinal and there was the brand of the urinal, Delaney Flush Boy. So it became Walter Delaney from the (sighs) Delaney Flush Boy urinal.
2: Barbara told me that not only did her father make enough money from the book to buy a large, beautiful house and take his wife on European vacations where they went to operas, she also said that Schaumberger received boxes and boxes of letters from readers, thanking him and requesting further guidance. In rereading the book all these years later, I still remembered the stuff about how to travel to the furthest reaches of the galaxy through mind power. But what I didn't remember at all was the last chapter, chapter 14. In the book's introduction, Schaumberger promises that in the final chapter, he would reveal nothing short of the meaning of life. What could be of less interest to an 11-year-old? And what does the chapter contain? It outlines the ten actions for leading a good life. The joy of giving, humility, working, caring, fidelity, sufficiency, calmness, learning, meditation, and reverence. Nothing flashy, no ultras, just the golden rule kind of stuff. I asked Barbara why she thought her father included all this straightforward, do unto others kind of thing, with nigh a single ultra in sight.
4: I think he believed in that quite passionately, and and it would have been the only um, platform he had. And, and if there was anything that would transform their lives, it wasn't going to be gained by chanting. It would be gained by, you know, living your life according to some basic principles of decency, you know.
2: Chapter 14 is the last stage in ultrapsychonics, wrote Schaumberger. It is the culmination of many long and arduous years of research. Please do not try to read it now. You will not be able to understand it until you have mastered the rest of the book. But once you are ready for it, I think you will find it to be one of the most profound and rewarding experiences in your life. Of all the chapters in Schaumberger's book, it's this last one that might be the hardest of all to master. It's the chapter with the fewest instructions. And on some days, I still don't feel quite ready for it.
0: Jonathan Goldstein, he's the host of the CBC Radio Show and podcast Wiretap Coming up, how to properly use monkeys, yes monkeys, I said monkeys, for the betterment of your family, that's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues American Life, Myra Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's show, magic words. They're used for good, they're used for evil. We wish that they're going to work. We cross our fingers and we wait to see if they will work. We have arrived at Act 2 of our program, Act 2, Rainy Days and Mondays. According to the Alzheimer's Association, every 67 seconds, somebody in the United States develops the disease. We're at this point with Alzheimer's where almost everybody has had some sort of personal experience with the disease through a spouse or a parent or a friend. And because we've had that direct experience, we all know how scary Alzheimer's can be. The thing you hear a lot is the emotional toll of taking care of parents and spouses, and you hear about the cost. But there is this other more basic challenge. You know, people don't talk about this as much, but it must be a problem that everyone close to the disease struggles with, and that is, what are we supposed to talk about? with our relatives who have Alzheimer's. What do we talk about, the same stuff we always have?
5: Did they tell you Jenny and Joe are moving to Florida? No. Yep, Joe got a, a promotion, and they're gonna go to Florida.
0: Sharon Stoby is sitting on the back porch of her sister's home with her mom, Virginia.
5: Something like that, they were in Florida. Super
0: good. Sharon says to her mom, you were in Florida.
5: Where were you? Um, let me think. You know, I can't remember. Um, do you remember who you were with?
0: This is a little off mic. She says, do you remember who you were with?
5: I was with Betty. Yeah. Oh, dear. And you met somebody there? Sunday, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. You met somebody special there.
0: Dad. Dad is the answer Sharon's searching for. My father, your husband. Sharon didn't go into this conversation trying to play some you know, memory game with her mom. She just kind of fell into that. And it's easy to see how, right? You love your mom. You want to spend time with your mom. What are you going to talk about, right? Shared memories are out. Mutual loved ones are not remembered. Even current news, like joyful news, does not necessarily create a connection. Right before they sat down on the porch, Sharon's sister showed Virginia a picture of her two-week-old granddaughter and said, Mom, look how beautiful, your great-granddaughter and Virginia looked at the picture and said, oh, no, for no queer reason at all. Sharon has a sister named Karen, and uh, Sharon's the oldest, Karen's the youngest. Virginia, the mom, was with Karen. And one of our producers, Hannah Jaffi walt got interested in this in this experiment that Karen has been trying in their family. Karen's been on a search for a new way to talk to her mom. Looking, you know, for some magic words to say to her mom as her mom is losing her memory, words that will keep them connected. And recently she developed a plan, a fully formed theory of social interaction for the dementia landscape. She's got rules. She's got best practices. It's a whole thing. And she thinks it can work. Here's Khanna Jaffe walt to explain.
6: Karen didn't have the plan in place when her mom first moved in with her. But she has wanted a plan from day one. Day one, there was just this constant stream of questions that never had definitive answers. Like, can I leave my mom at home alone? Or what am I supposed to do when she wakes up at 2 in the morning and starts getting dressed? What about when she wants another bowl of ice cream? And I remind her that she has diabetes, but she forgets that she has diabetes. See, Karen is a person who likes structure. The lawless, do-it-yourself nature of home dementia care never sat well with her. Karen would do what she thought was, right, take the ice cream away, and her mom would lose it, scream at her. This is a woman who never had a cruel word to say about anyone who considered shoot a swear word. She would look right into Karen's eyes and say, you're a supreme You know that?
7: I had this, like, moment where... I Googled like the rules of caregiving for someone with Alzheimer's, and I thought I, I wondered for some reason if they were even out there, if there was some. And when I read one of them that that said literally step into their world, I went, "Bam."
6: Step into their world was a familiar phrase to Karen from the many nights she'd spent doing improv comedy. She and her husband are actors. Step into their world is a mantra in improv. You walk on stage, another actor says something, and you step into their world, whatever world they've just created. You don't ever say no. You don't question their premise. You just say yes, and?
7: I, I didn't even see it. I mean, I didn't see the whole parallels of improv and Alzheimer's. And when I did, it was, it, it was just so obvious. I mean, it's, it's a whole yes and world.
6: If all you've got is yes and, you can't say things like, but you don't even like pickles. Or, you don't have a sister, Mom. You don't tell someone they're wrong, which Karen says is exactly what you always want to do. Like when her mom says she wants to go home, the most natural response is,
7: Oh, but this is your home now, Virginia. Come let me show you your room. But this woman is looking at you saying, I want to go home. And you're telling her she lives here? So now you're telling her she's a liar? So you're going to see her little veins start popping out in her neck and her little fists. But if you look at her and you say, she says, I want to go home, yes, and tell me about your home.
6: Now, she's not a liar anymore. Karen felt like she'd discovered an instruction manual. Here was a way into a relationship with her mom if she just followed some basic rules of engagement. Rules she conveniently already knew. And so did her husband, Mundy, who was glad to have some guidelines for how to relate to this new roommate. It's like improv, Karen explained. You love improv.
8: That, that's what I was like, okay, that's cool. I know how to do that, and that's what I'll do.
6: For Karen, using the tools of improv meant when her mom, Virginia, sees monkeys out the window, don't correct her. But Mundy, Mundy took the whole thing to the next level. When Virginia sees monkeys, Mundy sees them too. He told me, oh yeah, just the last time that happened. I said,
8: it's pretty early in the season for monkeys. Didn't even know actually that they were here in North Carolina. Oh, there's not a lot of them, but they're pretty busy now. Well, if you see one again, we should try and capture it because that would be a blast to have in the house. You can't keep monkeys in the house. Well, you just have to train them right. And give them pants, because if they don't have pants, I mean, it's that's just a barbarian's monkey. We can't have monkeys in the house. All right, all right, so I guess you're making up a rule that we can't have monkeys in the house. Yes, I am, but she at some point there's something in her mind is going, we're not being serious now about monkeys in the house.
6: And it's fun for her.
8: And it's fun for her, yeah. Yeah, she's definitely having a good time.
6: For years, the staff in nursing homes and dementia care experts advised families to keep your loved ones with you, mentally speaking. Remind them who they are, where they're from, show them pictures of your family. Hang orientation boards everywhere that say, Today is August 15th. The weather is overcast. The president is Barack Obama. But recently, the experts have changed course. And in the last decade or so, things like validation therapy are what's in. Caregivers are encouraged to listen, respond, try to live in their reality instead of trying to pull them over into yours. Basically, exactly what Karen and Mundy stumbled into on their own. Most people find it pretty challenging to interact in this way. But for Mundy and Karen, it's not hard. Mundy does it all the time, without thinking. How are you doing? I'm okay. Yeah? Yeah. I
5: think.
8: What a day.
6: <laughs> it's like... strange that when you
5: get up the mountain, it's much lighter in the sky. I'm very, I'm very noticeable.
8: You are very noticeable. I think. I've noticed you. <laughs> Don't <tell> I've, <laughs> I've noticed you before.
6: Virginia points to the family terrier Gus, tearing around the backyard, <laughs> digging, digging holes. <laughs> He's digging, like, for his life.
8: Gus is busy working on his (laughs) caverns. He's starting a coal mine, so he's going to get it started, and you're going to finish it up, right? I am. The the coal mine.
6: The coal mine. I never worked in a coal mine. I know. Mundy says, but I need you two now. I need your help finishing up the mine. Got to get out there and find some coals so we can pay off these bills. Virginia gleefully refuses, so Mundy says, oh, well. We'll have to shut down the whole operation then.
8: (laughs) All right, Gus. No, she doesn't want to go in, man.
5: Stop (laughs) digging.
6: All right, stop digging. Stop digging.
5: Gus, no digging. No, no, no.
6: This is a family all doing something together, sharing the same reality, the reality of closing down the coal mine in the backyard. When you're with your family, your parents, uncles, say Thanksgiving. Think about how much time you spend collectively recalling things. Remember when mom laughed so hard the juice came out of her nose? Remember when dad got in that crash? Or did I ever tell you how you potty trained yourself because you saw your brother doing it? It's nice to share memories, makes you feel connected. But also, usually what you're actually doing in that moment with your family is boring. You're watching the game, eating chicken for dinner again. It's fun to recall the more dramatic moments you've shared because they are not boring. They're not boring experiences you've had together. Virginia no longer has those memories to call on. She spends a lot of her day sitting on a porch, which can't be all that interesting. But when Mundy is with her, there's literally drama. They're dismantling a mine. It's the most animated and happy. I see Virginia all day. Yeah.
4: Yeah, the coal mine
5: over. He'll be here in a few seconds. There he is. The coal mine no, it's over.
8: No more Gus Caverns.
6: <laughs> Mundy and Karen moved to North Carolina from Milwaukee to live with Karen's mom. It was closer to the rest of the family, and to Mundy, it seemed like a good time to move. But he was wrong about that in one crucial way. It was 2006, right before the economy collapsed. They've found other ways to make ends meet, but Mundy left behind regular acting gigs, theater contacts, teaching jobs, just assuming that he'd find that stuff in North Carolina, which didn't happen right away.
8: I'm a performer. I like to I get on stage and I do these shows and I like an audience. And for a long time while I was here I didn't get a chance to perform that much, and so I, I guess I just kind of focused my energy towards her.
6: Towards Virginia, his mother in law. Mundy says Virginia is an excellent audience. I never have to rein myself in. I can do anything, any kind of joke. The only thing that doesn't really work is a callback. And when Virginia was with Mundy, the sweet woman everyone remembered started coming back.
8: I'll just do like the simplest thing for her like I'll get the cream out of the refrigerator and put it in the coffee and she'll say you're the nicest person in the world and I'll go yes I am the nicest person in the world you're right we've got to go find all the people that say I'm not the nicest person and slap them in the face and make them agree that I'm the nicest person in the world and she'll find that pretty funny.
6: You know who doesn't find that so funny? Mundy's wife, Karen. Karen told Mundy he had to find a way to perform more outside of the house. He was driving her crazy.
8: Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, Karen's mom was fine with it, but, but uh, Karen was tired of it.
6: Their teenage daughter, Grace, was tired of it, too. Grace is 15 years old, so when her grandmother sees something in the paper about the Beatles and says, oh, I've met them, it's like Grace is developmentally obliged to correct her. No, you didn't. Mundy could see where they were coming from, And he did eventually get out to more auditions, got some acting work. But by that point, Mundy was Virginia's favorite person. Virginia regularly wakes up in the middle of the night and starts getting dressed. And it's Mundy who can get her back to bed. At breakfast, when Virginia wants another bowl of cereal, Karen will say to her, I'm sorry, Mom, your blood sugar will just go through the roof. Virginia will sometimes reply, You're always so mean to me. Karen will try, Hey, could I have that bowl of cereal? No. Mom, how about something else? To which Karen's mother will occasionally reply to her daughter, I hate you.
7: But Mundy can swoop in there and go, hey, boy, that looks good. I'm so hungry. And she'd say, oh, you want this? You can have it. And I'd be like, you gotta be kidding me. What the heck? What is it? What is it about him that she'll do whatever for, not me?
6: One obvious answer is Mundy's not her kid. But remember, Karen's mom has dementia. She doesn't always know Karen is her kid. So if they're both strangers with the same approach, same words, it may just be that Mundy does it better. And that has created a bizarre reordering of the family dynamic. Karen's always been close to her mom. And now her mom likes Mundy more. What do you know about Mundy?
5: Mundy, couldn't be a nicer fella. Very nice guy, very kind, very nice. He's just crazy sometimes, makes you laugh.
6: Virginia is sitting with Mundy on the back porch. It's the end of the day. Karen's finishing up the dishes inside. And when she's done, she wanders out back. And this is what she walks into.
5: You're very intelligent. I am. Yeah, you are. That's true. Yeah. Very nice. Wonderful. What else should I tell him? About? Wonderful. I, I, didn't I say that he's wonderful? I don't think you
8: said I was wonderful.
5: I did. I said he's, he's beautiful.
7: you good looking. Oh, he knows mm-hmm. I know. I mean, he is. He's handsome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he never does anything wrong. Yeah. Well, what, what do you say yeah, sometimes? What do you say sometimes? If I say, Monday, you forgot to take out the trash. You say, poor Monday. <laughs> Everything is poor Mundy.
5: Just for this full oh, place. Mundy could walk in
7: and have blood all over him and say, I just killed a man. Oh, poor Mundy's got blood on his shirt. That's mom. Poor Mundy. We were keeping count at one point how many poor Mundys would happen in a day.
5: Well, I like and Grace Monday and I were trying to, get, I was trying to
7: get some poor Karens. I couldn't get any poor Karens.
5: You expect a lot of me, you know.
7: I know. I just want a
6: little bit of poor Karen. (laughs) Here is how deep Virginia's love is for Mundy. She has inserted him into her own childhood memories, the most vivid memories she still has, swimming, riding in a fishing boat. In Virginia's telling, Mundy was there for all of it. He was there with her on the boat, swimming in the water, traveling the country, not her husband, not Karen, Mundy. He shows up in every significant event in her life she still remembers. Like Forrest Gump, Mundy says. Meanwhile, Virginia has completely forgotten Karen's childhood. Again, a lot of the time she's not quite sure who Karen is, and sometimes she's not even sure she likes her. Like the other night, Karen was trying to get Grace to bed, and Grace was stalling
7: just a few more minutes kind of thing i said grace come on i said no you need to get up who are you to tell her no and i said well you know i'm her mom no you're not you liar and i was just like, and grace was like she is and i was like Grace, just go get to turn and she is so all the way up grace is like that is my mom that's that's my mom and i'm like um well she she is my daughter and she's your granddaughter i what no she's not I said, okay, and I couldn't help myself, but I said, well, who, who do you think she is? She, well, that's mine. I said, okay, who am I? Well, I don't know. You had nowhere to live, and I took you in, so you should be thankful. <laughs> I said, well, I am. Thank you for taking me in.
6: In a moment like that, the rules that Karen set up require that she deny who she is. That she is Karen, daughter of Virginia, mother of Grace, who grew up in Texas with a loving family. If Karen wants to do her plan right, she can't be that person in her own home. Starting each moment with a blank slate is easy for Mundy. It's fun to create a world out of nothing with this person as he gets to know her better. But for Karen, every interaction asks her to erase who she is
7: when my mom sits there and she says oh strawberries they just make me think of home my mind goes immediately to growing up in texas and her and i and dad going out to this huge strawberry field and picking strawberries and there is this piece that you just go that you have to let that memory go
6: Because what you want to say is like, oh, yeah, I remember. Remember we used to go to such. But that's not what she wants to talk about right then.
7: And you want to go, but what about me? (laughs) Because you want your own mother to have those memories about you and to
6: talk about your experiences. But Karen doesn't say the words she wants to say. She says different ones, the ones she's supposed to say.
7: Really, Mom? Where was it? Was it out by the cemetery? (gasps) Yeah, how'd you know? You know, and you go on and listen to the story.
6: While silently letting go of the memory that came before, letting go of the old scene, and trying to be ready for what comes next.
0: Hannah Jock-Walt is one of the producers of our show. Karen Stobie now offers workshops on how to use the tools of improv, with people who have dementia, including a special course on how to do that if those people are your parents. She's at moment.com. There's a dash between in and the moment. Act three: Pescatarian. So there's this new podcast that a bunch of us here at the radio show have started listening to, put out by Slate. It's hosted by Mike Pesca, who you may have heard over the last few years, reporting on sports for NPR. This new podcast isn't about sports. It's about everything. 20 minutes a day, often about the news, though just as often not. What makes it special is just, I think, the sheer joy, the gleeful, articulate energy that Mike Pesca marshals in thinking about and dissecting the world around him. The theme today on our radio show is magic words. And I thought of Pesca today because when he is not explaining, you know, what poker can tell us about missile defense systems or filling us in on the country in Africa that is doing really, really well. Mike Pesca is somebody who seems to take great pleasure in noticing words, how people use words, and especially the misuse of words. For example, last month there was this day when Pesca heard about some new menu items at Red Lobster, and he heard a phrase he simply could not let pass.
9: So I just found out that Red Lobster has introduced... Lobster topped entrees. However, I want you to listen to this commercial about 18 seconds in, and I think you will see and hear the part where the space-time crustacean continuum gets a little bent.
3: How did Red Lobster make four amazing entrees even better with lobster? Like savory new fire-grilled shrimp topped with maritime lobster and a citrus hollandaise,
9: or the new ultimate lobster-topped lobster. Three split lobster. You know what the dude said? Lobster. lobster topped lobster. Isn't that just a bigger lobster? The one thing you can't top a lobster with is another lobster. You can't top a thing with more of the thing. It's not the top. It's just the thing. Cherry on top. That makes sense. Cherry on top of a sundae. You know what cherry on top doesn't make sense? Cherry on top of a bunch of other cherries. Just more cherries. And this is why 7 I have
0: to say, I usually hate it when people go on and on about using the right word. That is not something I usually enjoy. I don't care about that. But Pesca's delight I find totally contagious. I end up repeating what he says about this stuff to my friends and my loved ones. One day, he got onto the phrase, toot your own horn. He said uh, he'd been listening to the previous day's podcast in the interest of
9: quality control. And, you know, I just got the sense that I was tooting my own horn. A horn was being tooted, and I, indeed, was both the tutor and the tootie. But I really got to thinking about that phrase. I would like to take two ticks to tutor you in the term to toot one's own horn. It is a strange phrase. It is a logically inconsistent phrase. Tooting your own horn has an opposite number, and that is to be hoisted by one's own petard. To be hoisted by one's own petard actually makes sense. I mean, it is antiquated language. It was coined by Shakespeare, but a petard is a small bomb. So to be hoisted by one's own petard means to be blown up, by a bomb blown into the air. It's a good phrase. A bomb, normally meant for someone else, blows up in your own face, lifts you high off the ground. Ashton Kutcher peeks out from behind the curtain. You've been hoisted. Great expression, I love it. But a horn is not meant for someone else to play. The expression, toot one's own horn, should instead center on a situation where you're forced to operate for yourself a device that was meant to be operated by another, right? So a more sensible alternative would be, Hey, listen, I don't mean to hold my own ladder. Or, look, I'm not trying to cut my own hair over here. Or, listen, I'm not trying to tuck myself in at night. Or, far be it from me to hand-start my own prop airplane. Or, I don't want to self-operate a two-handed cross-cut saw. Or, I'm not one to spot myself while bench-pressing. Or, even you can stick with the musical if you want. Hey, I'm not trying to play dueling banjos as a solo. And another thing, speaking of the musical, ever think of Louis Armstrong in this situation? How does Louis Armstrong humble brag about his own promise? Can't say anything about not tooting his own horn. And toot, really, toot? Toot? Did Miles Davis toot? Did Dizzy Gillespie toot? To toot one's own horn is a low form of self aggrandizement. In fact, it should be more accurately seen as a form of self midsizement at best.
0: Now, Pesca does know where the toot your phrase your horn, tooting your own horn comes from. It comes from a king, you know, king enters a room, there's trumpeters, there's fanfare. Others toot the horns for the king. Tooting your own horn in that situation would be very, well, kind of pathetic. But Pesca says today, you know, those are not the horns we think of when we think of horns. The phrase does not hold, and he called for a moratorium, or if you will,
9: a moratorium.
0: All right, so let's do one more, right? On a Monday, uh, just after the latest outbreak of Ebola virus hit, serious story, right, Pesca was talking about how the news had been covered on television. Over the weekend, uh, the Sunday talk shows had been full of talk of a killer virus, maybe out of control. Was the public at risk? People were asking this over and over. And Pesca was parsing out what was said and what was not said.
9: George Stephanopoulos was interviewing Dr. Tom Frieden. He runs the CDC. And I'm going to use the opportunity to play something that we sometimes play, talk show karaoke wherein I assume the role of a guest on the talk show. We'll have the host ask the question, and I'll answer the question how I wish the guest would have. Let's go to George Stephanopoulos' question. And
0: Dr. Frieden, as you know, a lot of anxiety here in the United States about the spread of Ebola, whether we're taking an unnecessary risk. A tweet that Donald Trump put out just the other day, he said that the U.S. must
9: immediately stop all flights from Ebola-infected countries, or the plague will start and spread inside our borders. Act fast. How do you respond to that? I'm glad you asked, George. First, a little bit about myself. I, Tom Frieden, have a master's degree in public health from Columbia. I did my residency at Yale. I've uh, been an epidemiologist in the field for many years. I've contained outbreaks of measles and typhoid and tuberculosis, as, as you know, for the last four years, I've been with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention as its director. It is the foremost facility of its kind in the world. So that's about me. Now let me tell you a little bit about Donald Trump and his qualifications. Donald Trump, the man whose opinions on contagious diseases you asked me to comment on, is in real estate. He also owned the New Jersey Generals, the Eastern Airlines Shuttle, the Miss USA pageant, and was executive producer of the reality TV show The Apprentice. A catchphrase from that show, The Apprentice, is contained in the following Trump quote about comedian Rosie O'Donnell. Quote, I'd look her right in that fat, ugly face of hers, and I'd say, Rosie, you're fired. An interesting coincidence from both of our biographies. I lived in India for five years where I fought disease. Donald Trump owned a casino that he called the Taj Mahal, took it into bankruptcy. Also, Donald Trump unsuccessfully sued for $5 million after proving that his father was not in fact an orangutan. And while all of this does go to Donald Trump's overall credibility in the specific area of scientific credibility, let me remind you that Richard Besser has called Donald Trump's mistaken beliefs on the causes of autism, quote, shameful. Now, who is Richard Besser, you ask? Odd that you'd ask that, because not 45 seconds ago, here was your introduction of this discussion that we're having right now.
0: And joining us now from Atlanta, the head of the Centers for Disease Control, Dr. Tom Frieden, and our own Dr. Richard Besser, also a veteran of the CDC.
9: Richard Besser is your network's chief health and medical editor. He said that following Trump's advice, quote, can kill children. So again, your question is, what do I think of Donald Trump's tweet? I just wanna go back to a little bit about my biography again. I have over 200 peer-reviewed articles published in scientific journals, But again, the question for me to respond to Donald Trump's tweet that the U.S. should stop all flights from Ebola-infected countries, so I guess I'll say this in response to that question, George. I should answer Donald Trump's take on science as soon as Donald Trump is asked to comment on my opinion that he is a pompous, overbearing, ignorant windbag who lusts for attention the way a meth-addicted prostitute lusts for his next fix. And to use an analogy from my profession, the media acts as an unwashed petri dish that allows this particular nasty virus to thrive. Perhaps a less incendiary way of me putting this would be to say. (laughs) Well, Ebola's scary, and it's understandable that with a deadly disease, uh, people are concerned. But the plain truth is that we can stop Ebola. We know how to control it. Hospital infection control and stopping it at the source in Africa. So that last part, that's what Dr. Frieden did say. It was probably smarter than what I should have said. Anyway, that guy is too important to pick media fights with Donald Trump. He already has one seemingly unstoppable plague to wrestle with.
0: If words really were magic, in all fairness, Donald Trump would vanish from the earth in a puff of smoke after that. The podcast is called The Gist, Mike Pesca. It's free, it's daily, five days a week. Find it at slate.com or anywhere you find your podcast. Special thanks today to Phil Kearney, Mark, Susan, and Doug Tompkins, and Annie Mack. Jake Halpern's book about debt that we talked about at the beginning of the program is called Bad Paper, Chasing Debt from Wall Street to the Underworld. You can read an excerpt in the New York Times Magazine this weekend. The book is going to be published in October, but you can pre-order it right now. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Tony Malatillo who says it is all right if people want to bring their dogs to the office.
8: You just have to train them right and give them pants.
0: I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of this American life.